I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Artemis Cooper, and it is a huge pleasure to be here and to uh, talk to Nick Hunt. It's wonderful to be here with Nick, who has written this extraordinary book about an extraordinary journey. Um, when I was writing the biography of Patrick Lee Fermer, I had to make a decision fairly early on about whether or not to do the walk. And I decided that I wouldn't, for a variety of reasons. And sort of about halfway through 2011, we decided it was, mm-hmm. just sort of around the time Paddy died. Yeah, I think so. uh, Nick got in touch, saying he was going to do this walk. So, of course, I was hugely excited by this. Lovely, someone's going to do it for me. <laughs> and anyway, uh, the result, I think, has been spectacular. And I think Paddy would have been so moved and pleased and happy by this this book and the journey. Nick, you must have read, before you started, hundreds of travel books and memoirs and things. What was it about this journey of Patrick Lee Fermer's that really grabbed you? It was one of those things that I think it was part of the time that I was, write, I was reading, 18... And sometimes when you read something at that age, it really gets into you. And I think, yeah, it just, it just haunted me. It was something about that idea of a lost world, as I thought it was. Um, a kind of a slightly imaginary version of Europe that I didn't... I mean, maybe it never actually existed in the way he said it did. But a lot of it did. Um, and I think it was always just... Um, it kind of occupied some part of my mind that wasn't filled by anything else. Does that make any sense? Yes, good, yes, it good. does. It does make sense. Uh, so you, when, how old were you when you read the books? 18. 18. And how old were you when you did the journey? I was coming up to 30. Right. Yeah. So there was um, that period in between of kind of assuming that I would one day do the walk. But um, it's always easy to think that something's going to be at some point in the future. And then I realised that the future was upon me and um, I was getting on a bit and I needed to, <laughs> to get on with it. And this is not the sort of journey to be undertaken lightly. So what kind of preparations did you make? So it was important um, to prepare as little as possible <laughs> in terms of training. Um, <laughs> I had this very romantic idea that... that Walking would be as natural as breathing and didn't need any sort of special preparation. Um, in terms of planning, I, I did the, the one thing I did was obviously I read his books. I went through the through the maps, circling each town and village, and then plotting that um, on a on a road map as, as closely as I could. So I had that map above my bed for quite a long time, just with this line across it. But in terms of, of Google Maps or looking at it in that kind of detail, it seemed like that would take the element of surprise away. It seemed too easy. 
And was that a sort of conscious thing? Because obviously, you know, in Paddy's day, he was doing exactly that. So, you know, he looks at the map, supposedly, this is, this is the story that he tells, you know, he, he suddenly gets this idea when he's at a sort of very low point in his own life, just sort of drifting, really. And, um, he decides to walk across sort of, you know, he's going to walk up the Rhine and down the Danube. And that was pretty much it. It was in an atlas. I don't think he had more than that. Now, was that a sort of on your part, a kind of conscious decision not to do more than he did? How much did he haunt you at that stage? Um, he haunted me quite a lot. He's a big, big presence. Um, and I think some a piece of advice that you gave me quite early on, which was great, because it was very liberating, was don't let him bully you. <laughs> I mean, don't let his, his ghostly presence kind of overawe what you do. Um, which gave me a lot of kind of mental freedom to do it my way. Good, yeah. Well, you certainly did, which is great. And what were the what were the sort of the ground rules? I mean, Paddy's ground rules. I think you you kept to, didn't you? That you weren't going to take lifts. I, I did take a couple. You did, yeah. So but did so did he. So did he. So did yeah. He. So that's yeah. all right. Yeah. But I mean, as a ground rule, that was sort of the original I intention, he, he'd done isn't it? it? So, oh yeah. No, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't have done. That. Um, um, but I mean, it was it was don't take lifts um, unless you have to. Yeah, really. yeah, unless you have to. Or, yeah, yeah, at the end of a long um, day. Did you have any yeah. other kind of ground rules? I mean, what sort of mobile phone, um, internet? Um, so I, 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 you... I, I, had, I had, a, had a laptop, but it wasn't connected. Um, it was just for tapping away on when I got somewhere that I could do that. Um, I had a phone, mostly switched off, but I would use, I mean, just use that to contact people now and then. And that was a big difference between you know, the way we could communicate, me and him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But had you already done, because I mean, this is to me is one of the most interesting things about the walk, because when Paddy sets out, he's got one letter of introduction, which he promptly loses, or rather it's stolen with his first rucksack. Um, but you had the couch surfing network. And the curious thing is, is that, I mean, you say this, I think in the book, that that thing of hospitality in Europe, was it going to be still there? And the answer was... It really was. It was. And that was something that I always, um, wanted. That was one of the central things I wanted to find were people, were people still kind? Because we have this, this idea that, that the world is, is, um, a bit crueler and more callous these days. And also that Europe is, is safe and dull and homogenized. And I actually went with quite a kind of doomy expectation that I was going to be chronicling some, um, a reduced continent that wasn't as much as he had found. Yeah. And it wasn't like that at all. That's actually something that Nick Breeley, who published the book, pointed out to me um, when I was writing an introduction to it based pretty much on the expectations I'd had before. And he said, um, it isn't, the book isn't like this. You know, it's a lot lighter and it's full of mm. um, a lot more fun and a lot more, you know, kind of sociable <laughs> relationships and moments of wonder and magic. That's right. Tell us about the couch surfing network. I'm absolutely gripped by this. So it's um it's very simple. People offer um accommodation in their house, whatever they can provide in exchange for a vague assumption that you would do the same for them in the future. It's no more than that. Um so I used this in in the early part when it was winter and Germany and Austria were more expensive countries. So mm. I I stayed in a lot of couch surfing places. And that kind of tailed off as I got further east because that kind of hospitality, which I see as really just a, it's a modern interpretation of this very ancient, um, desire to be kind to people. Yeah. That the internet has just enabled. 
That's right. And, and very much like Paddy's, um, the people that he stayed with, they would then, you know, email or phone their friends further on down the line saying, you know, Nick's coming. You'll enjoy his company. We've just had him to stay wherever it was. Yeah, I got passed and they, they, along. You passed along a like a yeah, parcel. Like yeah. a parcel. Yeah, which, is, which I think is absolutely amazing and that this still exists and that level of trust still exists is one of the things that I think is so wonderful about this book. But it got off to a really awful start, didn't it? I mean, the journey. I, it, painful, painful yeah. start. Yeah, tell us, tell us about that, that um, Three days start. in, I got um, agonizing pain shooting up my legs. And yeah. then my romantic idea of not training really seemed like it wasn't, it wasn't such a good idea. But of course, you're, you're going through kind of industrial wasteland at that stage, aren't you? I mean, you're, you're more or less walking on concrete for quite a lot of it. Yeah, I think one of the big differences was um, the, the, the surfaces that I walked on. You know, kind of yeah. country roads might now be um, motorways or, or hard surfaces. And I think that constant pounding really took it out of me on the first bit. Later, I got Achilles tendonitis, which was worse, and that was three weeks um, staying with um, a very kind and eccentric German couple for most of yeah, the time. Yeah, But again, you couldn't have sort of foreseen that, and their kindness couldn't have been foreseen. You know, you just had to sort of, there you were, couldn't pass the parcel then, could they? Because you couldn't move. Yeah, it was that. I mean, that was very deeply frustrating, but I think it was a good thing. Yeah, um, because I mean, it was necessary. Very, yeah. It had to happen. Yeah. There was an element slightly of, of kind of feeling like I'd passed through the, over the threshold. You know, I started, I started to grandiosely see myself in these kind of deep mythological terms at one point. <laughs> I, into the belly of the whale. And those boots, those are the, the, you just had that one pair of boots, those ones that are up there. Yeah. And they do, they play sounds. If anyone wants to come up afterwards, uh, they play the sounds I recorded on the way through those headphones. But I wore one pair of boots. That seemed kind of important. They, they took on this sort of talismanic significance. So you just had that one pair of boots? No others? Just them. Just them, yeah. Right. Uh, they stank at the end. And you can see they're full yeah. of holes. Why can you see that from the holes? I can't see any holes. There's a hole right in there in the sole. Oh, is there? Right, mm-hmm. okay. Um, but I think there was a kind of pig-headedness i guess a doggedness both to those boots and just to kind of keeping on through i think often it's much harder to stop than it is to carry on once yeah. you've set yourself in a certain mentality and also people are kind of expecting something that's right people yeah. Like you. yeah absolutely people like me yes get on with it um do now i'd love you to read us something from it well i'm going to read this, that bit from hungry because yeah read that bit walking. yeah exactly read that bit so this is, is kind of from a point um, pretty about halfway through on the map, the Great Hungarian Plain, which is the westernmost of the Eurasian steppes, and it was 10 days of, of dust and heat um, midsummer, going towards the Romanian border. And just seeing as we're talking about walking, this was really the point at which it started to have a kind of transformative effect on me, I think. It's when I started to appreciate walking in its own right. Mm-hmm. In the very beginning, it had been frustrating, the speed of travel. Um, and this idea of reaching a destination was always in my mind. But after a certain point, I began to enjoy the process of getting there a lot more. So this is a couple of days after leaving Budapest. When I left Mizotur, I was turning my back on the last hospitable oasis for a week. There were no more benefactors until the Romanian borderlands, 
Days of solitude and silence lay ahead. This was the point on Paddy's journey that he began to get passed along from aristocrat to aristocrat, rounding off his day's wanderings with hot baths, dinner and bicycle polo. He wrote, strolling from castle to castle, sipping tokai out of cut glass goblets and smoking pipes a yard long with archdukes instead of halving gaspers with tramps. On my post-aristocratic walk, this was the point at which I started to look and feel like a tramp myself. The constant sweat and drying of sweat created Rorschach patterns on my clothes, discoloured from the effects of dust and sun. My forearms and neck tanned purplish-brown, and my beard, untrimmed for weeks, took on an alarming aspect. Sometimes I became aware of a cloying, homeless stench I didn't recognise as my own. There was something transcendental about it. My body was starting to smell like another person's. The next day's walk was virtually indistinguishable from the one before. Once again, the land was yellow, the sky was blue, the dust was grey, and heat haze made the horizon roll like jelly. Infrequent columns of farmers passed mounted on tool-laden bicycles, each nodding, Servus, Sia, hello, trailing his own plume of dust. Sometimes I came upon a pink-fleshed, shirtless fisherman by an amputated snip of river, disconnected serpentines created by waterway regulation. And once a walnut-faced man with missing teeth emerged from woodland to shake my hand, when I told him where I was from, he bellowed, Angle! into the trees, where presumably concealed spectators were watching. My answer, Angle, Paddy wrote of a similar encounter, induced a look of vague politeness. An angle meant as little to her as a Magyar might in the middle of Dartmoor. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Round of applause. Lovely stuff. Now, you've only got two books, is that right? You've got... A time of gifts in between the woods and the water. Yeah, yeah. And what were they like? I mean, you're presumably, particularly that bit on the Great Hungarian Plain. You're reading. That's all you've got, really, isn't it? That and the notes, your your own notes. I mean. Yeah, and I mean the amount of times that his words went round and round in my head, and he kind of took on this kind of disembodied spirit feeling. Yeah. But it was it was always a way of deepening the experience that I was having, um, and just having the the kind of the shadow of something else. Yes. That underlay what I was, what I was yeah. seeing and what I was experiencing. So it was almost, I mean, you sort of saw the landscape. I suppose one does if you're, you know, got his words ringing in your head. You're seeing everything that he saw, everything that he experienced. But did you sometimes feel, hold on a moment, you know, get off my back? Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, <laughs> there's a couple of times when I, I kind of thought I'd come up with a great description for something. And then realised that <laughs> it was just his one that I'd kind of twisted around in my head. And it, <laughs> I think this is one of the things actually that I enjoyed about the book because it seems to me that Nick has taken, has very cleverly taken a number of Paddy's better stylistic points and avoided the, 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 the worst of them. So there aren't these sort of great digressions that you sort of don't know, which are wonderful, but you know, in the right hands. But what he does take is, the use of verbs, the way everything's in motion, um, enormous attention both to sights and sound. And also sometimes, I can't resist reading this bit to you, which seems to me absolutely pure paddy. Uh, this is, is fairly it about early Baroque on. architecture, many chance? No, you don't like Baroque no, architecture. No, Couldn't be that bit. <laughs> no, no, no. This is the bit where it says, after walking for half an hour, I passed a couple. This is just about going into Germany. I passed a couple walking their dog. And they nodded and smiled. Guten Tag. Was it my imagination? Or were their features less knobbly, sandier, squarer-faced? Were their clothes very slightly different? Probably not. But immediately it felt 
like everything had changed. I can just hear Paddy saying that. There had been no checkpoints, not even signs saying Willkommen, but this was the Reichswald Forest, and I was in Germany. And what, there are these moments when... What is it you know, about you that, just out of, of interest? What's the... Everything had it, changed. It just, okay. Everything had changed. And also this thing of trying to see, you know, the difference between a wine-drinking area and a, and a beer-drinking one, the way people will cross themselves in a different way, whether they drink their coffee before uh, their glass of water or they drink the glass of water first. And all these, these, these frontiers where they're not quite there yet, but you feel them. And that, to me, was sort of a very paddy thing. Yeah, that, I mean, the whole... That? Yeah, and the, yeah. the whole kind of... I mean, not consciously. No, not consciously. Um, but I think it's it's one of the it interesting does, it does make things. You, doing this sort of journey makes you acutely aware of these very slow, subtle changes that kind of creep along and seep in, and you don't really know where one thing ends and the, others, the other begins. Absolutely. There were certain yeah. points where it was like a, a cutoff and one thing had ended and another one had begun. And this really started mm. only in Eastern Europe. Yeah. And it seemed like the cultures were much less sort of merged and they defined themselves apart from each other a lot more stridently. That's right. Yes. Just before we come on to that and the, the differences sort of between now and then, which is so interesting, I just wanted to ask, um, you've got this wonderful thing about sort of castle squatting. And actually, I think you're very good at spending, you know, I think probably on balance, you spent more nights out in the open one way and another than Paddy did. Did you have any experience of walking and sleeping out in the open before this walk? Yeah, I did, yeah. I mean, slept in caves here and there and right. sure I slept okay, in the woods so, a few yes. times. I mean, yeah, but... Yes. I mean, and not not kind of professional experience. No, 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 no. More, no, more kind of no. misfortune. No. <laughs> misfortune is <laughs> But, and also, as you sort of, did you, did you think to yourself, um, yeah, I'm spending more nights out in the open than he ever did, you know, was there a slight sort of competitive edge at any point? Maybe, maybe, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I had to choose my areas of competition. I wasn't going to make friends with as many archdukes. No, And that was never sure, going to happen. Sure, so sure. I kind of had yeah. to pick my, um, <laughs> pick my battlegrounds. And, and, and ruined Gothic castles was, was yeah, one of them absolutely felt like a much a kind of uh, high class version of sleeping rough yes a bit of cardboard absolutely. and a sleeping bag and a tunnel in a in a castle wall lovely yeah a nice yeah. Di- a, a nice dry one yeah a nice the, dry the, one yeah 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 because the first three were all slimy and cold weren't they um <laughs> i've read this book very well now the other thing coming on to as you say as you as you walk further east, things begin to change. And I suppose the other thing I think you say in the introduction to the book, you're looking to see if that kindness is there in Europe, which it was. And then your other th- the other thing you're looking for is the wildness. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the wilder bits? Yeah, I mean, wildness is a very it's a difficult word, isn't it? And it's very overused and sort of broadly used. But I think what I meant by it, was the kind of wildness that he found, which which felt more like freedom, I think, the freedom to to wander and to see what happens and not to be constricted by things. I know that sounds very broad as well. Mm-hmm. I was always, I've gone on about this a lot, but I was always haunted by something that an old man he met on the banks of the Danube said, everything is going to vanish. They talk of building power dams over the Danube, and I tremble whenever I think of it. They'll make the wildest river in Europe as tame as the municipal waterworks. And that was, that was one of the phrases that haunted me. And one of the things that I kind of set out an expectation of seeing this, uh, 
a continent that had no wildness, wildness left. But you found it. Yeah. And not all over the place and kind of wildness of spirit as well. Yeah. Wildness of of people in that people are constantly surprising and, and, and generous and bizarre and hospitable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Although, as you say, the dogs got nastier. The people People got got nicer nicer and the dogs got nastier. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That was the general rule of going west to east. Yeah. There were some nasty moments with the dogs, weren't there? Yes, there yeah. were some horrible moments. Yeah, so sure. that was one of the few kind of tribal warnings that Eastern Europeans were right about. Don't go over there because the people are like this. They'd say, and that was never true, but the dogs were always worse <laughs> the, kind of the further I got. Yeah, and that was an interesting thing too. I mean, the, the political tensions seemed to you sort of very much as they were when Paddy was doing it in 1935. Yeah, the, the you- ethnic attitudes and cultural yeah. attitudes were exactly the same. It was amazing. I was quite impressed by how, yeah. how little they changed very broadly. I mean, it's not, it's not very broadly speaking. The Slovakians still hate Roma- uh, Hungarians and Romanians hate Hungarians. Hungarians hate everyone. <laughs> and they all hate, hate gypsies. And these are the kind of completely fixed uh, attitudes. And there hadn't been sort of any... And, and communism presumably was just a sort of blip in all that, was it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I think it sometimes encouraged certain attitudes. They didn't like each other even under communism. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was constantly being told that one group of people were, were awful, including Roma people, and mm. it never turned out to be true in my experience. I never had any kind of yeah. really bad encounters. That's right, and Paddy was told exactly the same thing. Oh, they're thieves, they're liars, you know, they'll strip you of everything you've got, you know, you'll be murdered yeah, and all the rest of it. they've all got venereal disease. They've all got venereal disease, and... They were all Not perfectly true. normal. <laughs> so now, what sort of, if anybody wanted to sort of do this walk again, what kind of advice would you give them? Um, don't train. <laughs> Go through the pain. It's necessary. Go through it's important. The pain. <laughs> Maybe do a few kind of uh, leg stretches Yeah. Um, before. Get a good pair of boots. These lasted me well. Um, but I think it's, it's the kind of mentality, I think, I've said that everyone's very generous and hospitable, but if you go expecting them to be, you probably get nowhere. If you, if you assume that's your right as an yes, eccentric foreigner yes. to kind of be given things. Um, so I think, I mean, just a little example. What, when I was in Eastern Europe, I always had a tent. And there's something different about asking someone, can I camp up there? Can mm. I sleep in the woods? Can mm. I sleep in that field? And then if they want to say, why don't you sleep in, yeah. a, in, a, in a spare room, then they can. But there's no sense that I'm begging. No, exactly. I think that's quite important. Yeah, Because you absolutely. need to kind of be, be autonomous as much as you can and mm. to show that you don't need these things to happen, but it's very nice if they do. Yeah. And then sometimes people needed you. There's this, I think there was an, another reading you were going to do with, when you meet Ilona. Yeah. Uh, Ilona Teleki, who is the great, was well, she great the great granddaughter of Yeno Teleki, who was one of the aristocrats that um, Paddy stayed with? And she very much wanted to tell you, didn't she, about sort of her story? She and did. She'd looked you out. And had, how did she yeah. find you? Um, just the mysterious pathways of the internet. I don't know, actually. <laughs> um, I think it was through a t- it was through Paddy's books. She'd found this was a, a Hungarian sort of noble family that had been dispossessed under communism. And it's worth saying that I didn't. There were two ways that I could have done this, and one of them would have been to go much more as a journalist and go seeking people out to interview them and mm. setting up these meetings with certain people who were relatives of people that Paddy might have met and 
I think that, that for me, that took away from the spirit of the journey because it took the element of surprise and the chance encounters out of it mm. and made it a lot more formal. Yeah. So I didn't do that, but Eliana contacted me, which That's was right. great. And, yeah. um, and this read came this, out read of it. That, it's that, yes, exactly. The passage where you go back to one of the houses. So this is walking, stayed. yeah, back towards, um, a place that he stayed in 1934. For most of the day, I followed the river struggling through jungled woods and tripping over vines. The river had widened since Radna, here and there narrowing to in- into bottlenecks or forking to enclose wooded islands. As I neared my destination, I fought through a stubble of charred stalks from the burning of the winter grass, pushing my face through scorched willow that whipped across my face and arms, giving me charcoal stripes. Coated in ash and sweat, I came to Kapolnash, looking like I'd escaped from a fire. Paddy wrote... I loped exhausted through long shadows to the Koshtoy of Kapolnash. Double flights of steps mounted to a balustraded terrace where people were sitting out in the cool moment before sunset. There were glimpses through French windows of lighted rooms beyond. If I squinted, it was almost the same, but the people on the terrace wore dressing gowns rather than evening wear. Dogs slumbered in the sun, and a stocky, powerful-looking man was strolling in the garden. He was wearing what looked like a walkie-talkie, and from his authoritative bearing, I took him for an attendant. It was only after he'd seized my hand, linked arms, and marched me to the house that I realised he was one of the patients. The walkie-talkie was actually a blaring radio. Weirdly, he looked a lot like Jack Nicholson. (laughs) Yon, he introduced himself, like the singer, Elton Yon. Nicholas, I said. Sarkozy, he cried, and slapped himself on the forehead and erupted with laughter. Vive la France! Then he seized me by the head, a slightly alarming turn of events, and landed two (laughs) bristly kisses on my cheeks. A curious circle of patients gathered round, shaking hands and smiling, men and women, old and young, in plastic slippers and woolly hats, smoking furiously. One young man with a shaved head and white socks pulled up to his knees, approached me with an expression of rapture. Yon impatiently shooed him away, circling his finger in the air and giving me a meaningful look. Crazy, he explained. Double doors of polished wood led to a dim, tiled hallway. A marble staircase laid with dirty rugs climbed to the upper floor, where an ornate gallery looked down on the glass-panelled ceiling of the room below, once a famous library. The dining room was a dormitory, where daylight from the French windows spilled onto hospital beds piled with slumbering forms, disordered heaps of pyjamas and legs, men in various stages of exhaustion or depression. The rest of the house was a mildewed warren of corridors and mysterious half-closed doors lit by flickering chandeliers where patients shuffled in semi-darkness in a fog of tobacco. Women in shawls scowled around door frames. The upstairs bathroom was occupied by aggressive stray dogs. (laughs) Unlike Strykovec or Mokrea, there was nothing sanitised here. This hospital looked more like the set of a low-budget horror film. Ileana showed me to the room set aside for her family's visits. Three hospital beds and a ceramic stove the colour of a glazed pie dish. She showed me family photographs, Count Teleki staring owlishly through round spectacles with spotted bow tie and toothbrush moustache, and took me on a tour of the estate. The overgrown gardens reverted to nature, the half-collapsed stables and outhouses, the attic, the roof, the labyrinthine cellars. The story of Ileana's family was a permutation on a narrative that was familiar by now. The estate was nationalised in 1948, and they were preparing to flee when they were betrayed by a former servant, arrested and imprisoned. The property was confiscated. Recently we obtained an inventory of the things taken from the house, she said. 
It was obvious no one had any idea what they were dealing with. Very valuable items were marked as ring, piano, painting, chair. We asked the National Bank what happened to it all. They said it was sold to help pay off the external debt in the 1980s. Throughout the communist era, the remaining members of the family were disgraced and humiliated. After being tortured in jail, Gino's son Eugen was given a menial job in a railway station and became an alcoholic. When people used to jeer at him, asleep in the waiting room, he would say, let me be. This is how the last Count Telecki wishes to die. As evening wore on, I started to feel curiously at home. Under the surface creepiness was a gentle, even tender sense, as if the house and the gardens around it were, like the patients themselves, deep in convalescence. We visited Telecki's grave in the woods. He had died during the war before the estate was nationalised, and his resting place was surrounded by lichened columns and vaulted with trees like a chlorophyll cathedral. In communist days, the family were forbidden from setting foot here, so they couldn't lay flowers on the grave. They used to throw them over the wall. It was the closest they could get. Dogs sang in the garden, and patients griped in the corridors. The lights intermittently brightened and dim, as if controlled by an unseen pulse from the overworked heart of the building. The house itself, I had come to see, was the victim of a trauma. It seemed an appropriate sanctuary for people who, in ways I'd never know, had been through traumas of their own. It was like the special needs school I'd seen in Eneu, built to deal with the damage caused by the failed orphanage system, traumatised children housed in the ruins of a traumatised culture. Kapolnash, like its current inhabitants, was in recovery from history, refugees from the modern world. Ileana repeated something Yon had said when she told him of her family's plans to renovate the house. Why renovate, he'd replied. Objects, like people, get morally damaged. I left on a grey overcast morning, the birds singing as if before rain. Yon shook my hand and planted two last tobacco-smelling kisses on my face. He was standing at the gate to say goodbye, hand raised in salute. Long live the kingdom of Great Britain, he roared as I went by. Then greenery closed over the house, and Kapolnash was gone. So you're writing notes as you go along. Were those notes the basis of the book, or did you find you had to rewrite the whole lot when you came back? Yeah, I had to rewrite it. I mean, I started out going heavily on the notes. I kind of found, and this was another thing that Nick really was great at telling me, not everything's interesting. (laughs) Um, Things like, you know, a kind of amusing looking dog I'd seen one day that seemed deeply important at the time or an interesting bit of rubbish um, needed to go. And a lot of it did. (laughs) So it was really a a process of just whittling and whittling and whittling and whittling down. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least you didn't take sort of 40 years over them, which Paddy did and didn't finish it. Anyway, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Do read it. Do buy it. It's it's an extraordinary ending to this great journey that started off with this young man in 1933, whenever it was. Anyway, I think we'll write it off there. And has anybody got any questions? Hi, just a very trivial one. What language were you using generally to communicate? Um, bits. I mean, I picked up bits, not with the proficiency that Paddy did, but... Um, I'm quite good at, at make, imitating the sounds people make and doing arm gestures that match them. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people spoke English that I met. I used a bit of German, bits of this and that. Romanian was um, a lot closer to something I recognised because of its Latin roots. But lots of um, 
this and that and sketches and gesticulations. But hopefully, I mean, enough people communicated with me so I actually got something from them. Nick, I gather the return journey by air was a very jarring experience. When can we expect the sequel? Um, you can expect another book. I would love to walk back. That's, that's something I'd love to do. Whether that will be a book or not, I don't know. I mean, uh, somebody I met who had also happened to walk to Istanbul for very different reasons and a very different route um, is about the same age as me. He, he had this whole thing about the importance of pilgrimage, sort of non-religious pilgrimage or religious pilgrimage. But his whole thing was that you get, when you get to what seems to be the destination, that's really only the center point, the exact center point. Your real destination is your front door because you have to come back. Mm-hmm. And so before people had planes to get back on, they had to walk back from where they'd walked to. And it, it did feel a bit like it, that was truncated. Yeah, it was a very quick way to return. Mm-hmm. Nick, you, you observed the changes of in 78 years across a whole, a most of a continent. If someone else in 78 years' time from now was, was to do that same walk, what kind of changes do you foresee they might see? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> You're asking me to make a prediction. Um, uh, the whole continent will be covered by um, feral wild bulls. <laughs> and there'll be no people left. That's what I'm hoping for anyway. <laughs> Um, less, less, I don't know, less um, EU flags. There'll probably be something else. I don't, I've got no idea. But, but do it. Get your kids to do it. I, I just wanted to pick up on um, Artemis's uh, comment uh, or the, the comparison between the writing uh, on that everything had changed. Um, and it, it seemed to me that um, some of that was in the, the placement, the caesura, as it were, the storytelling, the, the creating pinnacles in, in stories and how to turn them, create turning points. And, uh, Nick, you're, you're a wonderful, uh, storyteller in your own right. Um, and I wondered if, uh, you found that the, the journeys through these fantastical, uh, places that you must have been real places, but if they conjured, fantasy for you that encouraged your storytelling in other ways than the book of your own journey that you told if they uh, if they sent you on imaginary trails that you're picking up on or yeah or that you, you've enjoyed yeah absolutely and i think a lot of that comes down to being i don't know you need to be able to find fascination in in the seemingly non-fascinating and that's that's where the stories are but it's the kind of things that I don't know, there was actually there was a, a journalist who did a section of that walk through the um, part of uh, Austria called the Donauauen, which is a sort of wetland forest. And he described it just as this dull monotony of trees. Couldn't find anything interesting at all. As if you go with slightly different eyes, you can see it's you can see all the kind of fascination in it. So I think it just comes down to being more having a lower threshold for finding things interesting. And of course, it's the act too. That's one thing we we didn't talk about was the the thing about walking for day after day after day. It does become something else, doesn't it? Yeah. And that sense of joy. Yeah. That was something that really surprised me because I thought, I mean, a time of gifts 
the joy just pours out of that book. And I thought that was Paddy, his sense of liberation. And it is. But it's also, isn't it, just the, the act of walking, which I hadn't realised. It's very, yeah, it is very conducive to joy. Yeah. But also yeah. other things, that kind of dislocation you talked about. There's a, there's a definite sense of dislocation. The thing that would recurrently happen is that I would get used to my circumstances and get a bit lazy in the mind. And everything would seem a little bit kind of monotonous, maybe. And then suddenly it was like I kind of said in there, it's like the skin of the world being pulled away. Um, and it's these moments of, of revelation that can happen in the most mundane ways in, in a suburban car park when something just suddenly seems a lot more significant, a lot deeper and a lot stranger and more exciting than, than you give it credit for. Yeah. It's happened with people as well, and people are constantly surprising. Yeah. Happen with landscapes of, of all types. It was like having a little losses of faith, and the loss of faith would be that maybe this isn't such an interesting place, and then it would mm -hmm. suddenly have this reconversion where something, yeah. you know, there'd be some small wonder that would occur on the way. Yeah, and has that stayed with you? Yeah, yeah, it has. Yeah, it has. I think oh, just, just, just look around them. Those are good things there. <laughs> you had um, Tom Gibson between the woods and water as your guide for the first two stages, but I'm guessing that Artemis didn't give you the early drafts of the broken road. No. So what was your guide? <laughs> Artemis. Yeah, part. Well, I did. I, I gave him the route. I, yeah. I gave him the basic route map. Right. I gave him the. Uh, I said, you know, he's going to go from. He's going to cross over Orsova, and then he's going to do Sofia, and then he's going to do, you know, uh, Rila, and then. Uh, so I, I gave you that bit, I think, didn't I? Is it worth just saying in case anyone doesn't know what that that's about? He he. His, the third book of of Paddy's trilogy was published after he died, and a lot of people thought it never would be published, and Artemis um, edited it. And it's so his his narrative stopped for me. It stopped at the place called the Iron Gates um, on the Danube, just between Romania and and Bulgaria. It's the point at which he entered Bulgaria. So I didn't. It was a kind of strange inversion on that bit because I had his route from Artemis, but I obviously I didn't have his words or his thoughts or his experience to guide me. So it became almost a sense like I got like a, I was kind of leading the way a bit, and then his his experience would fill in what I'd missed afterwards, but that was after I got back. I have to say it was also quite liberating um, to have the kind of the freedom. Yeah, at last you were on your own. I was on my own. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, could, I could sort of, by then I'd kind of got, got, I could spot the sort of things he would have been all over. Mm. Yeah, ancient things, romantic things, uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my question follows on from that quite well. That, um, how much will you miss Paddy when you write your next book? Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know, maybe a lot. We'll see. To a certain we'll degree, see. he's sort of, I mean, at least with me, he's sort of, he's still there. He hasn't gone away. <laughs> he's sort of become, he, he kind of, he becomes, I suppose this is the way life works really you know you you write about somebody or you get to know them very well and then they do stay inside you for as long as your memory and your life carry on if i remember correctly Furmore had a very generous mother back in england who was constantly forwarding him uh, money drafts as he progressed along his journey so that he was never destitute um did you have a, a similar generous mother helping you out at all well, she's here. 
<laughs> but 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 no. Um, she is very generous. But I mean, my the, the way I kind of funded this was cr- I crowdfunded it, sort of another modern way of making raising money. Um, but really, it was actually very cheap because I started out with this idea of he did it on a pound a week, um, which I thought, as far as I could work out, was about fifty pounds a week today. Um, but I probably started out at around that budget, and then it got a lot less. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't actually that much to do. Um, Simon Reeves, who also has done pilgrimage uh, pilgrimages, talks about the main purpose of pilgrimage being to change yourself. How far would you say that this particular walk has changed you? Yeah, this is this is another question that I find very hard to answer. Again, I think somebody that knows me could probably judge it better than me because I don't know what the I don't know what the benchmarks are where you measure one change against another. Might be clearer in ten or twenty years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just wondered if it was possible for two people to do the walk and and get the same amount of pleasure that one person would, or has it got to be kind of you on your own? I think it has to be has to be alone. I mean, it's, it would be a different a different a different walk. Um, certainly for me, it, it was important um, because it needed the, the sort of space and mental space, and to do it as closely approximating the spirit of what he did. You know, you could do a different type of walk with two people. But I think a lot more of the experience would obviously be about about your relationship with them rather than the distance and the land and the, mm. the chance encounters on the way. Yeah. And you wouldn't somehow be so sort of vulnerable to, I mean, open to people coming and, you know, taking pity on you or taking you to the pub or, you know, doing whatever, um, just sort of generally taking you under their wing. You know, you're not so alone. Yeah, you're kind of more of a team. You're more of a team. Yeah. But I think when it's just mm. one person, you're, when you're you're kind of not threatening, and yeah, you are exactly um, easy to fit in. Mm. The camp bed under the stairs. Yeah. Hi, um, are you tempted to trace any of Paddy's other travels to like Crete or areas of Greece, anywhere like that? I think for now, no. It was always the um, the journey, that journey that got me. Um, that was always the thing that haunted me rather than him himself, and he was an extraordinary person. But I was more interested in, in him walking that walk than I was in him mm. as a person doing other things. Yeah, I think it's one of the nice things, too, about the book, is that actually you share a lot of you know interests and obviously the walk with him. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that Paddy is fascinated by that leave you absolutely cold, like Baroque architecture and... Um, <laughs> ancient lineage and stuff like that and it's actually incredibly refreshing <laughs> so, so Nick um, we've got Paddy's journey which is split as we had it in two between the woods and uh, a time of guess and between the woods and the water and was your did your journey have a, a split in it when I read it I thought when you cross that Slovakian border mm. there, there was a change of pace uh, I can almost detect a change of pace immediately um, could you could you divide divide your journey at some point, and would would that be it? Is the east that's yeah. got that's got something about it? Yeah, that was that was the big step into a, a world where the people were different, the smells were different, the colours were slightly different, everything seemed different. People's facial expressions were different. Um, going from Austria to Slovakia, um, 
And I think that step was a lot, uh, a lot starker than it was when Paddy did it, when the whole region was middle Europe and it was much more kind of integrated before the Cold War and before those, you know, they were sort of forced apart. But the other, um, the other way that I kind of mentally divide my journey now is color blocks. So it was brown up until Bavaria because it was drizzly and wet and rainy and muddy and everything was, was kind of shades of brown. And then it was pure white with snow up until Vienna. And then with that change in step into Slovakia, it went yellow. Everything was yellow uh, right through until the borderland of Romania. And then it was green to the Black Sea coast. And then it was blue with the blue of the sea walking down the coast. So I kind of see it in these, these color blocks. I mean, the, the seasons, if you did this, obviously, another time of year and didn't get half frozen in Austria in the snow and didn't bake on the Hungarian plain, um, it would be a very different, completely different way of experiencing those places. It was always quite important to me that I started out in winter and got cold um, because I wanted, I wanted Germany to be covered in snow. I wanted Austria to see the Danube frozen and pine trees with snow falling off them. Mm. I did, yeah. Mm. yeah. Which is your favourite nationality? Oh dear. <laughs> um, the, um, the place I loved, I won't try and stay away from the nationality. Romania was the, the place that I fell in love with and I think he did as well. Mm. Um, somehow, as soon as I stepped over the border... And I'd received dire warnings from Hungarians about what, what lay ahead. And they'd really put the fear of God into me. So I'd kind of delayed crossing the border for quite a long time, uh, assuming I was going to be attacked by bears and bandits and dogs and wolves. I was attacked by dogs. But I, I felt instantly comfortable. I don't know why. Um, something in the, the feel, yeah. the feel of the place. But I remember you also saying that it was the first place you really felt comfortable as a walker. Yeah. That people yeah. were kind of on foot as a normal Thing. Well, there's, yeah, there's less cars, um, mm. fewer cars. There's, um, the, the, the horse-drawn traffic slows everything down. So it's, it's, it felt a lot more natural. And I got the sense that people didn't, I mean, not that anyone ever really bothered me, but in, in parts of Western Europe, there's, there's more of a kind, there's more rules, really. Mm. And in Romania and from there onwards, people didn't really, I asked some, uh, people sometimes, can I, you know, can I camp? up there in those woods and they'd kind of look at me like I was I don't yeah do what you want <laughs> it's not none of my business and they were sort of very refreshing it kind yeah. of so there weren't notices everywhere freer. saying trespassers will be prosecuted in Romanian no no mm. there's a, a lot a different attitude to the land I think mm. but yeah to answer your question I, I really loved Romania I'm very upset by all the um, tabloid bullshit uh, about how hordes of Romanians are going to come here and steal everything we've got um, because yeah, I was no, I was treated with absolute courtesy and um, and kindness. I'm just interested in in doing one of these lengthy walks. To what extent you were able to avoid the concrete and the roads and go on the byways and suddenly think, well, maybe this might be quite interesting to go off piste here. Yeah, you have to go off piste. I mean, I did walk on a lot of roads. Sometimes it wasn't there was no other way around it. I'd find just very simple things like if you've got a choice between a, a pavement and a and some leaf mulch running in the in the just walk on the leaf mulch because it just softens it. 
and each day, I mean, without a kind of detailed map, each day became a kind of tactical game in trying to work out how to get from there to there, um, whether it's following a river for a bit or a cycle path or crossing a park or going away from the road and up through the woods. It's quite fun, but you have to kind of be inventive, I think. Many people have thought about doing the walk you've done, but most of us, like me, would never have the guts. One of the scariest incidents in the book is the Night of the Wild Boar in Bulgaria. Was that the scariest incident? (laughs) In retrospect, at the time, I was uh, just very conscious of it. Um, I, I, I I wasn't trembling with fear. I mean, this... No, the boar, the boar was good. I was pleased to see the boar. Um, I was aware that it, it was a very dangerous, very large animal, and I was on its, um, in its, in its world. But, um, dogs, dogs were worse. Dogs were worse because they really went for me. Um, there were moments in terms of sort of danger, um, mountains up in the Carpathian Mountains when I got very lost. I was climbing snowy mountains without, again, I was, woefully ill-prepared I didn't have I mean my boots were not quite that bad but pretty bad um didn't really have any waterproof stuff anymore and had you know half a loaf of bread and a sausage in my bag and no no idea where I was going but there were moments there where I thought this is yeah this is this is really scary um but again I quite enjoyed that I felt like something was happening I mean really I'd, I'd rather encounter that sort of thing slipping up a snowy slope than miles of petrol stations. Nick, I'm so glad that I didn't do that walk, and I'm so glad you did. (laughs) That was great. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.